Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. It's a, a lovely and delightful honour of mine to welcome you to Dundonald and add my welcome to Lily's and to those that have already um, said hello to you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us online. If you're doing that, uh, you are very welcome to be with this community too. My name's Malcolm and I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. We don't take your participation in our church family for granted, nor do we take it lightly. So we are grateful to you for being here and we pray that God will speak into your heart and into your life today. We're working our way through the book of Habakkuk and we're going to continue that by reading Habakkuk chapter two from verses six through to 20 this morning. Shall not everyone taunt such people and with mocking riddles say about them, alas for you who heap up what is not your own. How long will you load yourselves with goods taken in pledge? Will not your own creditors suddenly rise and those who make you tremble wake up? Then you will be booty for them because you have plundered many nations. All that survive of the peoples shall plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. Alas for you who get evil gain for your house setting your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed and find a city on iniquity. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor only to feed the flames? And nations weary themselves for nothing. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Alas for you who make your neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath until they are drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will be sated with contempt instead of glory. Drink you yourself and stagger. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and shame will come upon you and upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of the animals will terrify you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. What use is an idol once its maker has shaped it? A cast image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in what has been made though the product is only an idol that cannot speak. Alas for you who say to the wood, wake up, to silent stone, rouse yourself. Can it teach? See, it is plated with gold and silver, and there is no breath or life in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. How does God make all things right? That's the question that we've been asking and we've been exploring the book of Habakkuk over the last uh, three weeks. And this morning we come to these remarkably powerful and challenging verses. How does God do that? If you, for a moment, keep your Bibles open and read back with me, 
you will see that Habakkuk makes a decision after God has spoken to him a second time at the beginning of chapter two. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer me concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tables or tablets so that a writer or a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In those first three verses, Habakkuk is declaring or describing a decision that he has made. For those of you that haven't been following this series online, basically over the last few weeks, we have looked at Habakkuk making two complaints. The first was, why do the wicked prosper? Why do, does evil seem to be on the ascendancy within the people of God, not outside the people of God? He's not talking about society. He's talking about evilness and wickedness within the people of God, within Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. And Habakkuk cries out to God and says, why do they get away with it? And God says, they won't. That's his first answer. I will send the Chaldeans called the Babylonians and they will execute judgment on them. And that gives rise to Habakkuk's second complaint. But how can you use people that are less righteous than the people that are being judged to judge them? That's not fair. And God says, I will answer you. And that brings us to Habakkuk chapter two, verses one through to 20. And there are three things that I want to highlight for you from this uh, chapter this morning in the hope that it will, not, it will help you. Not simply by looking at what happened um, 600 or 700 years before the birth of Christ. But taking what happened then, which is when Habakkuk was prophesying around 630, somewhere between 630 and 609 BC, and exploring what God might have said through Habakkuk about his questions, and then applying them to us today. And the first thing that Habakkuk makes a decision about that you hear is, wait. This story isn't over yet. God has already explained to Habakkuk twice what he's going to do. Number one, he's going to, he sees the wickedness of his people and he's going to deal with it. And number two, the question around the fairness of his judgment is itself an unfair question because God knows what he is doing. And in response to those two fundamental answers, Habakkuk says, I will stand on the watchtower and I will wait. And God says to him, Write down what you see. Make it clear because the vision is for appointed an appointed time. It will yet appear. Wait for it. Even if you have to tarry, wait for it. Again and again in chapter two, verses one to four, uh, God says to Habakkuk, as Habakkuk says to God, I will wait. Habakkuk says to God, I will wait. And God says back, wait. Many of us abandon an answer to prayer too early. We ask God why he hasn't done something, he goes to answer us and we've moved on. We look at a situation and we say this is unfair but we're only halfway through the situation. We're not at the end of the story yet. I have had a problem since I was born. You say, just one? <laughs> from I was able to read, I think I picked it up from my mother. If I pick up a book, I have to finish it. Anybody else like that? It drives me mad. If I read the first line of a book and I think I'm not gonna like this book, there's something in me still has to read it. 
I get halfway through a really bad book, and it can be really long, really bad books, eh? And I think, oh, I have to read to the end of this. And I never read the last page first. How many of you read the last page of a book before you get to the end of it? Go on, admit it, you cowards. <laughs> Sometimes when we're watching a television program and we're trying to work out what's going to happen, my wife has this innate knack of being able to guess and it drives me mad. And I will often say to her, do not tell me what you think is going to happen and don't look it up on Google. <laughs> we want to know the end of the story and we can halfway through it or a quarter of the way through it or 10 minutes into it get so restless, get so discontented, get so unhappy that we want to get to the end. Or, or we get so despondent, so tired, so exhausted that we think we're never going to get to the end. And we're needing something to hold on to. The wonderful thing about faith in the God of Scripture, the God of the Jews and the God of the church is this. When you know him, you can know the end of the story even when you're in the middle of it. And here, Habakkuk is told, wait. And he makes the decision to wait. Don't give up when you're halfway through the fight. Don't walk away when you see a corner in the distance and you're worried about what's around it. Habakkuk had to wait. In fact, the people of Israel had to wait. This book is about not just one man waiting, but one man teaching a nation to wait. If your life's in a hard place this morning, and I guess many of our lives might be, don't give up. Learn to wait. Learn to give God a chance to say something into your life, into your soul, into your spirits. But don't wait passively. Don't wait assuming God isn't at work. Don't wait thinking that he's abandoned you. That leads me to the second thing that God says to Habakkuk. Wait and watch. Watch what's happening around you. Watch what's going on. Now Habakkuk's complaint was about the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and how they were behaving and how God was going to judge them. It wasn't a personal complaint. He wasn't talking about his sorrow or his suffering or his struggle, although in many ways I think the sorrow and the suffering and the struggle that we find ourselves in often fits within a bigger story. It is part of a larger narrative. And therefore, it's legitimate for us to ask some of those questions as we read through this book about our own personal lives. From verse 6 through to verse 19, Habakkuk describes five different attributes of the people of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the ones that are going to oppress Judah. So that you are aware of the history, I, I know most of you are because you've been journeying with this. This complaint, this letter, this poem, it's an extended poem really, was probably penned around about 630, 620, something like that. 30 or 20 years later, depending on when you set the date of the poem, the greatest kingdom that the world had seen up to that point, the Chaldean Empire, swept down over the southern kingdom of Judah, took control of it, 
and over three successive deportations moved the people of Judah from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to modern-day Iraq and to Babylon, which is where they stayed for 70 years. That happened 30 years after Habakkuk was asking these questions. It's just important to get the context. Yet here in Habakkuk, God explains to Habakkuk that if he watches, the very people that are bringing the judgment, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians as we call them, will themselves be judged. And God highlights to Habakkuk five different attributes of the behavior of these people for which they will be held accountable. You might say, well, that is not really relevant to me today. I guess the modern equivalent for me would be to say where the church is being persecuted, where the church is being abused, where believers are being imprisoned, where they're being locked away, there are more Christians around the world now that suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ than there have been at every, any moment in time and history up to this point. The all-party parliamentary group on religious liberty just a few weeks ago said that this was the greatest challenge of religious liberty in the world today and that it had been swallowed and hidden behind claims about how Muslims were being treated and Buddhists and, and lots of other people from lots of other faiths. Let me be clear, persecution of anybody because of their religious faith is wrong. Persecution of any faith group is wrong. It shouldn't happen anywhere in any context and we as Christians should not persecute or, um, or attack anybody because of their faith. It's only when we take that stand that we can then make the same stand for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. It's a different question to ask about persecution and hassle when you haven't endured it. When you haven't grown up in a container or in prison or lost your father or your mother or your son or your daughter, if you haven't had a gun put against your head to demand that you deny Jesus Christ, you have the ease of answering that question without having ever really faced it. So we must position ourselves as we consider these questions in a posture of humility. As we consider what God might say, but these verses say something not just to this church, but to the church of Jesus Christ. I see what is happening to you. I know what is happening to my people. I am aware of every injustice, every unfairness, and in the end, nobody will get away with it. There is only one church in the world. When one part weeps, it all weeps. When one part rejoices, it all rejoices. When one part celebrates, it all celebrates. So we are part of the church of Jesus Christ, which is persecuted in the world, even if we ourselves haven't faced that persecution. That should evoke in us prayerfulness, generosity, solidarity, kindness, compassion, determination to lobby and to stand up when we have the freedom to do so for our brothers and sisters around the world, amen? It should cause something in us to shift so that we say we are part of the church of Jesus Christ and if someone is called by God, son or daughter, they are my brother or sister. Here in Habakkuk, if Habakkuk learns that he has to wait, he also has to watch. Run your finger for a moment down through these verses and you will see five times in your Bible in verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 19. I'll say that again for those taking notes. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 19. 
The word woe or alas is repeated five times. Five times God speaks to Habakkuk about what he sees in these Chaldeans, what he sees happening in these people. Five times he reminds Habakkuk that he will put it right five times. As he examines different attributes of their character, he says to Habakkuk, the end of this story is not yet. Watch, and as you watch, wait, because I am going to do something. That reminds us of many things that I'll return to in a moment. But these five images, these five uh, woes, or these five alasses, the five warnings that um, Habakkuk picks up, remind him that the Chaldean Empire and all of its glory and its significance and its strength and its posturing and its swaggering will one day fall to Almighty God. If you're interested, verses five to eight highlights their ambition. Verses nine to 11 highlights their covetousness. Verses 12 to 14 highlights their ruthlessness. Verses 15 to 17 highlights their debauchery, their licentiousness, their hedonism. And verses 18 to 19 highlights their idolatry. Let's take a look at each one very briefly to see what God might say to us. First, let's run through them within the context of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians themselves. In verses five to eight, God reminds Habakkuk that the ambition of the Babylonians is overarching. It's consuming everything. Wealth is treacherous, he says in verse five. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as Sheol. Like death, they never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect all peoples as their own. Verse four says, look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them. Verse six, shall not everyone taunt such people and with mocking riddles say about them, alas for you who heap up what is not your own. How long will you load yourselves with goods taken in pledge? Will, you not, will not your own creditors suddenly rise? And those who make you tremble wake up, then you will be booty for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all that survive of the people shall plunder you. Because of human bloodshed and violence to earth, to cities and all who live in them. Habakkuk sees a picture of the Babylonians and their greed and their robbery and their vandalism and their avarice is all consuming. They want everything in front of them. Isn't that what happens in any empire? Whether that empire is a government, a nation, or a family, or a business, when they are driven by greed, they become obsessed and controlled by something which is completely insatiable. I want more, 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 more. I have to have enough and I don't care how I get it. Every great empire of the world has fallen because of that. More nations, more wealth, more minerals, more resources, more people, more control, more geographic presence, more ports, more seas, more boats, more, so, more, 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 more. And God says to Habakkuk about this empire, the greatest the world has ever seen, its greed will eat itself. Its avarice, its yearning to be controlling will eventually turn and bite it and begin to devour it. Here in modern Western Europe, we don't face many empires 
that are physical, the Austro-Hungarian or the German National Socialist empires or the fascist empires. In the Middle East and the, the, in parts of um, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a different story. But here, perhaps the greatest empirical threat that now exists within the continent of Europe might be the Russians as they begin to um, rediscover something of their collective desire to overtake Eastern Europe and Balkan states. I can talk on that in a series that I'm going to preach on in a few months. But I'll tell you what we do face. More than anywhere else in the world, we face the empire of secularized liberalism that is trying to devour every virtue, every value, every family, every concept of ethical rightness and morality around it. And I tell you, sisters and brothers here and watching online, it is devouring itself and it will eventually devour its own roots because it will become aware of its own inconsistencies. You're already beginning to see it within a, a rising secularized liberalism. One bit of society saying, my rights are more important than your rights. And another bit saying, no, my rights are more important than your rights. And rights after rights after rights after rights are being articulated and defended and demanded. And eventually, in this great plethora of a rights-based society, one section says to the other, well, I'm better than you and it begins to collapse. Somebody wrote about that. Many of you, if you've ever done a GCSE O-level or O-level or a GCSE English, will have read the book written by a man called George Orwell. He was about 30 or 40 years too early in his title, 1984. Do you remember it? Anybody read it? Anybody still have sleepless nights over that horror? No, it's a good book. Snowball and Napoleon, two pigs that overtake a farm, representing Trotsky and Stalin. And they begin by overthrowing and getting rid of the, the uh, adults that are looking, the humans that are looking after the farm. And they begin with this wonderful clause, four legs, two legs good, four legs better. And they overtake the farm. And then they begin to have factions and fights as their rights begin to get conflicted and they argue and fight with each other. And Snowball and Napoleon, two pigs by the way, are arguing for their own authority and power and they change it back again as one set of pigs defeats the other set of pigs and they learn to walk on two legs. And what had begun with two legs good, four legs better becomes four legs good, two legs better goes back to four legs good, two legs equal and ends up with two legs good, four legs better. As they, and you said, what? <laughs> As they completely recreate the very um, structures and attitudes in the society that they said they wanted to break, but they recreate them around themselves because now they're the ones in charge. The same will happen with secularized liberalism. There is nothing as intolerant as modern tolerance. There's nothing as illiberal as modern liberalism. There's nothing as unaffirming as modern affirmation. It all eats itself. Here, Habakkuk sees through the eyes of God and realizes that this empire that is ambitious and overreaching will eat itself. Its creditors, verses, verse seven of chapter two, will rise up and eat it. Their ambition will be their destruction. The same is true for those empires that set themselves up against the people of God. Their ambition will be their destruction. By the way, this isn't just figurative. Go to Babylon today and you will see a devastated ruin. 
Once the greatest city of the world, once the place of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the great wonders of the world, you'll see it utterly, utterly destroyed, devastated, laid bare because its pride and its greed and its determination ate it. And it ended up with nothing. To help you understand how much you can rely on the Bible, would you turn back, please, to to Isaiah's book, the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. This is written um, perhaps 150 years before Habakkuk. So around 750, maybe. Now keep your finger in Isaiah. These are all verses about Babylon. Chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. God says, See, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men and they will have no money, no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pride of the Galdeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. Arabs will not pitch their tents there. Shepherds will not make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there and its houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will live and there goat demons will dance. Hyenas will cry and its towers and jackals and the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Go to chapter 14, verse 22. I will rise up against them, the Chaldeans, says the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, offspring and posterity, says the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 29 to 32, 33, 35 to 37, 39 to 40, and in Jeremiah chapter 51, the whole chapter, God tells the people of Israel what's going to happen. In Jeremiah's case, 70 years before it happens. In, Israel, in Isaiah's case, 160 years before it happens about Babylon. If I took you to Babylon today, it's still uninhabited. Despite many efforts, not only is it uninhabited, but the Arab nations refuse to live there. They won't pitch their tent there. It's caves and holes inhabited by wild animals. What you are reading of in Habakkuk is what God said would happen to those that rose up against his people and that there would be a devastation forever. And it still is. Despite all the efforts to rebuild it under Saddam Hussein, despite everything else, it lies as a ruin today. Their ambition is overreaching. Secondly, their covetousness will destroy them. In Habakkuk chapter two, verses nine to 11, We understand that they wanted to rule the world. They wanted to control everything. They wanted to be at the center of all things. Alas for you who get evil gain for your house, setting your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. The image here is of a a group of people who are so aloof that they they build their empires like nests of eagles and eyries high up in the mountains, thinking that the higher they go, the further away from um, danger they will be. They want to rule the world and they want to be separate from it. This probably points to Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
But I'm sure it also points to the empire in Obadiah and in Job, this idea of an eerie, an eagle's nest, an eerie high up is also used as an image of detachment and distance. But God says, I can reach you there and you will be cut off. They can't run away from my judgment. They can't run away from the fact that I see what they are doing. And here is an interesting thing. If you read verses nine to 11 closely, listen to this sociologically, politically for a minute. Here's what God says. When an empire detaches itself and continues to control and to manipulate and to own the people that it is dominating, it breeds in that people generations of vengeance and resentment and hatred that will eventually rise up and destroy it. Isn't that the story of world history? When one empire treats a group of people as if they are things rather than people, there is something bred into the generations of that people that resents them until they throw the yoke off. God says that's what will happen with the Chaldeans and it's what happened. I'll come to that in a minute. Their actions create a deep desire for vengeance and God says I will use that vengeance. In fact, he says it's so strong that he uses a really powerful description in verses 10 and 11. He says, the beams in the houses that they're building and the plaster in the walls is seeped with vengeance. And it's as if the beams and the plaster cries out, break this yoke from us. Thirdly, not only do we see in the Babylonians their ambition and their covetousness, we also see that God says their ruthlessness will be destroyed. In verses 12 to 14, Habakkuk describes the Chaldean, the Babylonian approach to destroying people, to building buildings after building after building, to forced labor, to the bloodshed involved, to seeing people as a commodity in a market. They were determined to build their houses and their empires and their cities and their viaducts and their, their great palaces at the expense of the poor and the defenseless and the weak. And God says, for all of the vastness of the building of these great buildings, I see them and their cities will fall. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 58 tells us that very powerfully as does Daniel chapter two verses 36 to 45 Babylon will fall. Babylon will be destroyed. Babylon will be brought low. But here's what Daniel adds and what Habakkuk adds. We'll get to the verse in a moment. But God's kingdom will build and grow and develop and never be destroyed. Somebody say amen. amen. In verse 14, you hear Habakkuk saying this in juxtaposition to this covetousness being destroyed, this ruthlessness being destroyed, this greed and licentiousness being destroyed. Listen to what God tells Habakkuk about God's kingdom, about God's empire, about God's purposes. But the earth will be covered with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Empires will come and empires will go. But one day, every square inch of this planet will declare the greatness, the glory, and the honor of God. Nothing is stronger than him. Watch. Don't just wait, watch. God has a big plan and that big plan is tied up in those verses. 
The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not part of the earth, not a corner of the earth, not a section of the earth, the whole earth. All those cities and towns where Christians and believers are imprisoned now, all those places that feel dark, those places where people have been separated from families, those thousands of believers in North Korea locked away, 70,000 of whom will probably die in the next 10 or 15 years. Not one of them will die in vain. Not one martyr has died in vain. Not one Christian has lost their life in vain. God sees it all. And when you have had an injustice committed against you, God sees it. When you've been denied that promotion, when you've been laughed at, when you've been ridiculed, when you've been marginalized, when you've been sidelined, when you've watched your children or your grandchildren go through fire and furnace and rejection because of their faith, God sees it. You might say to me, Pastor Malcolm, why are they getting away with it? You're reading the story halfway through. How can it be that my court case is lost? How can it be that my name lies in tatters when I did nothing wrong? How can it be that an accusation has stood against me when I am innocent? You're halfway through the story. God knows the end of this story and he will bring about justice. Their ruthlessness will be the very thing by which they are judged. Their exploitation of the poor, the defenseless and the weak. Fourthly, their debauchery, verses 15 to 17. Alas for you who make your neighbours drink, pouring out your wrath until they are drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will be sated with contempt instead of glory. Drink you yourselves and stagger. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and shame will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of the animals will terrify you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. Their hedonism, their self-centered definition of joy and fulfillment and desire, their, their wanton absorption of any kind of emotion and feeling so that they can be happy is the very thing that will destroy them. The two images that Habakkuk uses are drunkenness, not drinking, but drunkenness and nakedness. At another place and at another time, I will perhaps address the issue of why I think it is wrong that Christians should ever be drunk. But these are, this is one of those verses a Christian who allows herself or himself to be completely controlled by anything, whether that be drugs or drink or addictions to sex or alcohol, is allowing themselves to come under the influence of something that they're giving power to that God wants. Their nakedness, their shame, shamelessness, their, their flaunting of all of their desires. God says, I see it. And he says, I will make them drink the cup of my fury. They have destroyed the nations, but they themselves will eventually be destroyed. What's powerful about these verses that I perhaps will return to at some other time is the way in which it also speaks of a society that is disregarding creation itself. Abusing the planet. Taking advantage 
of the resources that God has given it for their generation with no regard for the generation after. You couldn't get a more up-to-date topic, could you? And here it is in Habakkuk, 650 years before the birth of Jesus. And lastly, their idolatry will destroy them. In verses 18 and 19, Habakkuk says, what use is an idol? Once its maker has shaped it, a cast image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in what has been made, though the product is only an idol that cannot speak. Alas for you who say to the wood, wake up to silent stone, rouse yourself. Can it teach? See it is plated with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. The Babylonians will become like what they worship. And what they worship, quite apart from the names of the idols that they worshipped. Let me give you three adjectives that describe what they worshipped. Cruel. And they became cruel. Ruthless. And they became ruthless. And useless. And they became useless. God says to Habakkuk, nations become what they worship. What does the United Kingdom worship? 40, 50, 60 years ago, we started to make decisions in this nation about liberty and freedom and our rights and everything that we deserved. 60 years later, we look like that. We cut off our life supply and now we ourselves are lifeless. We told families that they could fall apart. We told people they could do what they wanted. We told everybody that there was no right and there was no wrong and everybody could behave as they wanted and there would be no consequences and now we are living with the mess of it. And a generation that is fatherless and motherless and directionless because of the decisions that the generations before us made, but we as the church of Jesus Christ have to say something into it. Idols are useless. They promise you everything and they take everything from you and they leave you with nothing. I'll be wealthy and the wealthier you get, the more you need until you've nothing left. I will be in control. You become paranoid. I will have my way. You become so caught up with my nuisance. I will have my vengeance. You become so bitter. We become what we worship. Those five attributes of these Babylonians, idolatrous, debauchery, ruthlessness, covetousness, overarching ambition, defined who they were in relation to Israel, the southern kingdom. Those five characteristics define our society. They define life around us. And just as God said to Habakkuk, wait and watch, he says to you, sister or brother, wait, watch. My kingdom has not been destroyed. My purposes will not be thwarted. My um, desires will be achieved. I will Deal with every question you have. Nationally, locally, in your family, in your church, in your denomination, spiritually across the world. I'm not blind, I can see it. 
Sometimes we end up thinking God can't see us. He's forgotten us. He's forgotten what we're going through. He's forgotten our questions. He's forgotten our situation. He must be too busy with helping the Christians in another part of the world to see this little congregation here in Northern Ireland. But God sees. He knows every word. He sees every desire. He sees your life. I said there were three things. Watch, wait, watch, worship. Look at how this story ends in this section of the letter, verse 20, or this section of the poem. With all of that going on, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Can you feel an amen rising in your heart? Let me remind you of something. This is said nearly a hundred years before Babylon falls. And 30 years before they take the kingdom of, the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. 30 years after this, Babylon becomes the strongest that it had ever been. Now imagine being Habakkuk. And God says all these things to you. And you say, okay, I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch. After the first decade, it's worse. You'd scratch your head and say, how can this be? After the second decade, it's worse again. And you think, well, how can this be? After the third decade, it's worse. And then you die. Habakkuk never saw the answer to this. But he believed in faith that those that came after him would. And 70 years later, the greatest empire in the world was brought to nothing by Almighty God. You and I might not live to see the full extension of the kingdom. It doesn't mean it's not going to come, amen? We may die seeing things getting worse, but it doesn't mean that that's the end of the story. I'm not asking you today if you're a Christian to give your life to something that will make you better off. I'm asking you to give yourself to something that will extend the kingdom even when you die. That will keep growing and growing and growing until one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'm not on the losing side. I might lose my battles. I might die with illness. I might go through struggle and heartbreak and pain, but I don't lose this fight. God has won it already. And everything will be put right. And how do I know that? Because he promises it. Because he tells us, but this verse, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Whether Northern Ireland makes decisions that I agree with or disagree with, the Lord is in his holy temple. I will lobby for what is right. I will fight to defend those things that I believe create a context and a community in which the gospel can be preached most. I will be at the ballot box asking those people that I vote for or those that I campaign alongside, will this advance the kingdom and will it help the poor? Will this protect an environment for the gospel to be preached or will it not? 
I will fight for those political ideals that I believe are important to me. My connection with the other parts of my culture and my community. I will defend that. But I will not build my hope on that. Our hope is built on nothing less than the Lord is in his holy temple and will not be moved. Let all the earth keep silent. I'll pray for the healing of those that are sick. I'll stand beside those that are heartbroken. I will bury the dead. I will weep with those that weep. I will rejoice with those that rejoice. But I will plant my feet in this soil with all of my questions and all of my uncertainties. The Lord is in his holy temple and he will not be moved. Let all the earth keep silent. And if Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom goes to hell in a cart, God is still on his throne. And we have confidence in him. Not in our ability, not in our power. You might be surprised, but I don't even have the confidence that you would think I should place out of this passage. My confidence isn't in my denomination. It's in my God. Don't you put your confidence in my preaching. Put it in your God. Don't put it in a leadership team. Put it in your God. Let God be the center So here is what we do. How do we stand in the midst of all the heartbreak and pain that we see in the struggle? The sermon title for this was God will have the last word. He sees all things and will put all things right. How do we live in that? We wait. We watch. And we worship. And I can think of no better analogy for you. No better illustration than the fact that we still have to take communion. We take it to speak of brokenness, but we will not eternally be broken. We take it to speak of shed blood, but there will be a day that we do not need to eat bread and we do not need to drink wine. When? When the glory of the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And with everything going wrong in our lives, with all the questions and anxieties that we might have or all the joys and sorrows, we eat this bread and we drink this cup saying this, the Lord is in his holy temple, he will not be moved. Therefore all the earth be silent before him. Jesus died to advance that kingdom. Jesus died to secure that kingdom. Jesus' blood purchases you for God. Turns away God's wrath from you that you deserved, offers you forgiveness and new life and new hope, gives you an anchor that will not be broken or moved in the storm, gives you something to hold on to. Do you know that love? A love that shines brighter the darker the world is. And this morning here in this church shines, blazes out because Jesus Christ is exalted and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he offers you life and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Come to this God. The God who answers, sustains, holds and carries you. The God who has not pronounced the last word over your life. Because here is what the last word will be over your life. The same last word that was uttered by Jesus before he died. That's the last word over your life. Can you imagine it? In your last breath whether you use this word or not, 
Whether it comes out of your lips, it will come out of your spirit. Finished. Accomplished. Done. Secure. It's over. Let's eat bread and drink wine to remember that we have a God who will never, never abandon us. Let's pray together.